The question is, what is the core value that people need from me? And then how can I make sure that I'm delivering that in a new way while being really, really crystal clear about the continued value that I provide? Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Graytech Group. You're invited to join our MEP and construction innovation adventure with the mission to propel this great industry forward. My guest today is Jason Pfeiffer. He's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, a podcast host, book author, keynote speaker, startup advisor, and non-stop optimism machine. His goal is to help people become more resilient and adaptable in a world of constant change so you can seize new opportunities before anyone else does. Well, welcome to the show, Jason. I'm excited to, to have you on. Thanks. Excited to be here. So, uh, you know, in life, change is a constant, but people still really struggle in embracing it fully. How do you encourage people to embrace change for the opportunity of growth that it's actually presenting? Well, I mean, look, it's, uh, it's not easy to shift your mindset, but I think a good place to start is by identifying why you are so uncomfortable with change in the first place. I found uh, in my own life, but certainly in studying others and talking to people as they've experienced their big moments of change, that a big reason why we struggle with change is because we experience change as loss. Something new comes along and we immediately think, oh, well, this new thing is going to replace an old thing that I was familiar with. So that feels like loss. And then because we want to know what's going to come next, we extrapolate the loss. We start to say, well, because I'm going to lose this thing, I'm not going to lose that thing. And because I lost that thing, I'm going to lose that other thing. And we, suddenly it starts to feel like a tailspin. And so one of the things that we need to do is whenever we are experiencing some kind of change is we need to push ourselves to identify gain as well. It's much harder to see gain. Loss comes first, gain comes later. But if we can start to anticipate what that gain might be, look for it, try to extrapolate, try to plan for it, that's where we can really start to feel like we're in control and we have something that we can grow as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you really make that mental shift in from seeing the loss to seeing the gain, what's a what's a low hanging fruit there? Well, you know, a good place to start is to just ask yourself a couple simple questions. I, I mean, look, let me be really clear here that like if you're going through a really challenging time or transition, that uh, simply asking a couple questions is not going to solve everything, right? <laughs> Which is the reason sure. I wrote a whole book. <laughs> uh, but um, um, but you know, as just a, as just a one place to start, I think a couple simple questions is a really nice place. And to to give you an example uh, of uh, how this can be put to use. I'm just going to tell you a quick story. So um, the year is 1906. And um, and uh, recorded music is a brand new thing, uh, like a completely new technology. There's phonographs are entering people's homes for the first time. And uh, this is a radical uh, because if you consider it from this moment, uh, in 19, not 1906 is, is, you'll see exactly, but you know, the turn of the century is, is really what we're talking about. From, from this moment uh, prior, for all of human history, the only way that you could listen to music is if a human being was playing an instrument in front of you. And then suddenly there was a machine that could do it. It was revolutionary. And this was very exciting for a lot of consumers. They were, they were, their minds were blown. They didn't believe it was possible. But it was really scary for musicians because musicians saw themselves being replaced. They thought, you know, that their their livelihoods at that point depended entirely upon performing live for people. That's where they made their money. They would perform live and they would also sell sheet music if they were a composer. That was basically it. And now suddenly 
here was this machine that could perform without them. And so the leader of the resistance against this thing was called John Philip. His name was John Philip Sousa. He's a, a famous composer. He was, he was um, uh, you, you, we still know his work today, uh, all the military marches, da, 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 John Philip Sousa. So John Philip Sousa argued um, all these crazy arguments against recorded music. And one of the ones that he told was uh, in 1906, which is the reason I bring up that year. He wrote this article in Appleton's magazine called Menace of Mechanical Music. And it, uh, it went like this. He said that if recorded music enters the home, then uh, it will replace all forms of um, live music. And, because why would anybody perform live when they have a machine that could do it? And then because no, there would no longer be any live performances in the home, mothers would no longer sing to their children. Because, because again, why would they do that? And then because mothers are not singing to their children, the children who grow up to imitate the mothers will instead grow up to imitate the machines, and thus we will raise a generation of machine babies. That was his argument. Now, that's a crazy argument, right? But you can see what he's done. He has extrapolated the loss. He saw change. He experienced it as loss. He saw, well, now people aren't going to want to record or perform live. And then he extrapolated. He said, well, if they're not going to perform live here, they're not going to perform live there. They're not going to perform live there. So anyway, the reason I tell you that story is to say that when you are catching yourself in that moment, and there are versions of that that we do ourselves, right? If you're at a job and there's a change to your job, the very first thing you think of is, oh no, I don't have access to the thing that I was comfortable with and good at. And oh no, if I don't have that, then maybe I'm not as useful to my team anymore. And then if I'm not as useful to my team anymore, then maybe I don't have a job here anymore. And if I don't have a job here, then maybe I actually, I'm going to get, uh, you know, I'm going to get fired and I'm never going to get another job in this industry again. This is what we do. Let's ask ourselves some questions. Number one, what new thing are we doing? What new habit are we learning? Um, uh, 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 let me break those actually. So like, no, number one, what new thing are we doing? Well, uh, in this case, uh, John Philip Sousa could have said, well, the thing that we're doing that's new is, um, people are now listening to uh, music whenever they want. What habit, this is question number two, what habit or skill are we learning as a result? In, in this case, you could say, well, people are developing the habit of having more control over their music when they listen to it and who they listen to. Now, number three, most important question. How can that be put to good use? How can that be put to good use? Let's ask, seriously. Mm -hmm. Whenever you go through a moment of change, how can this be put to good use? I'm learning something new. We're doing something different. How can it be put to good use? Um, if John Philip Sousa had asked that, he might have realized, well, uh, I can now record myself and then people can buy my music and listen to it whenever they want. I don't have to be in front of them which means that I can reach a lot more people at the same time than I could when I was just performing live and the only people who could hear me who were the ones in front of me. John Philip Sousa really was protecting a system that was actually limiting his economic opportunity. He didn't realize that because he hadn't asked these basic questions to try to extrapolate the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great story. Thanks for for going through that. It really brings to light, I think, the the fixed mindset versus the, the growth mindset mentality. And, yeah. uh, I think everybody has a probably a disposition to one or the other, but uh, I think breaking those down into those three questions is a, is a good way for people kind of stuck in that fixed mindset to maybe shift over into that, that growth mindset in a period of change. Cause you have to adapt. You have to figure out a, a way to move forward or else you're, you're just going to be totally stuck. Yeah. You know, I mean, a fixed mindset is really based upon fear of losing the thing that you already have. Um, and, and what we should be learning 
over time as we go through these moments of change is that in fact the greatest things that are available to us are often the ones that we hadn't previously identified and so giving yourself just a way to start to imagine what those things are and start to engage with those options can help prove to you that actually some of the best stuff is the stuff that you don't already have and therefore you don't have to think of things in a fixed way because a fixed is just simply trying to cling on to 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 what you have you know it's it's there's a you know it's funny we, people talk a lot about fixed mindset growth mindset um there's actually a, a there's a parallel that's worth thinking about which is um uh when you have a fixed mindset about like an entire economy have you ever heard mm -hmm. of the uh, lump of labor fallacy it's one of my favorites no no what's so, that so uh lump of labor fallacy is a it's a it's an economic um you know, sort of way of thinking. And anyway, the, the, the idea here is that the fallacy is that there's a fixed lump of labor in a, in a marketplace. Uh -huh. So, um, so that we have a, you know, we have a certain number of people and a certain number of jobs. And if you switch either of those factors, then you create an imbalance. So this is why people worry that new technologies are going to permanently put people out of work, right? Because what you're doing is you're actually, you're keeping a fixed number of people and you think that you're just now reducing the number of jobs. Uh, this is also mm -hmm. why, for example, um, you know, not to get political, but uh, wh you know wh why there is uh, often opposition to immigration because the idea is that you're adding people, but you have a fixed number of jobs, and therefore there's going to be an imbalance. But what we have learned across time is that that's never true because because there isn't a fixed lump of labor. There is in fact a completely flexible lump of labor. But it, there's a there's a flexible amount of jobs and there's a flexible uh, amount of people. And if you create technology that reduces the number of um, uh, if if you invent um, uh, a, a plow so that uh, farmers don't have to uh, do the work by hand, it's not like they're out of work. What they instead do is uh, find other jobs or they create new opportunities. Um, they eventually create a, 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 a you know a kind of um, leisure class of activities that then people want to spend money on, which creates more jobs. This is what we always do. And so if you think, look, look, the economy is people fearing uh, having a fixed mindset and it never comes true. It shouldn't be true for you either as an individual. Mm -hmm. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, our audience is it's largely in the construction industry. And so they're experiencing right now this, this seismic shift as technology really comes into the, the industry and the digital transformation is happening in construction. It's, it's truly the, the next kind of industrialized revolution taking hold. Yeah. Uh, so based on your experiences, how can people really better spot the areas that will lead to the growth areas versus here's a new shiny object that's coming on. Yeah. The well, so I think that the way that you differentiate shiny object versus uh, true growth is, uh, you know, it's, it's pure evidence and data. And, and I think that the more in which you can take very seriously what people want and need and how that can be provided to them, uh, what, what are, what are, what are the problems that need to be solved and how can you solve them or how can this new technology solve them? I think the, the closer you are to understanding what's going to be real value and where you might want to shift your resources, you know, like, look, it, it, it's when you, when you look back across time, what you see is that some of the most powerful innovations that seemed like they were terrifying to uh to, to to the people at the time um were really misunderstood and were in mm -hmm. fact 
great creators of new opportunity. Um, and oftentimes the thing that was lacking was some particular way in which the value of this innovation could be communicated to people or the way in which it could be brought to the world. Now that was super abstract. So I'll, um, I'll, I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, so, you know, I, I'm trying to think, let me tell you about elevators. And the reason I want to tell you about elevators is because elevators are uh, a core part of uh, any uh, large-scale construction. Um, and also because when automatic elevators were introduced in the 1940s, 1950s, mass introduced, they were really, really scary to people. Um, people saw, well, first of all, the elevator operators saw them as uh, putting putting them out of a job, right? Reasonably so. Mm -hmm. Um but also consumers saw it as technology that was scary for good reason. Imagine this. You do not, in any other circumstance except for an elevator, you do not walk into a closed space uh, where you can't see outside of it and there's no human operator and it physically moves you. Nothing else like it. Um, and so this was really scary to people. And... Uh, what ultimately happened was uh, the elevator industry was trying to figure out well, what is it that people need to feel comfortable here? How do we solve people's problem, right? The technology solves one problem, which is moving people up and down. But now we have another problem, which is that we've created a, a, an efficiency. We've added a new technology. We've altered the way in which this thing operates. And um, and yet we don't, uh, we, people aren't stepping into these things. They're really scared. What they needed to do was they needed to build a bridge of familiarity. What they needed to do was identify mm -hmm. the thing that people felt most comfortable by, the thing that they wanted, the thing that made them happy, and then give it to them in a new way. People don't like new things. What they like are better versions of old things. And so the way that the elevator industry uh, ultimately solved for this problem was that they they said, uh, well, why don't we put a soothing female voice in the opera in the elevator that says things like going up and going down and floor one and floor two. And this is what ultimately got people to come into the, to the elevator. Now, the reason why I tell you this story is not to just like tell you another wacky thing from history, but rather to show you that like when massive change comes to an industry, oftentimes it can feel completely crazy and overwhelming, but what you have to do is really drill down to the basics, which is how, how are we solving problems for people and what do people want and what do they need from us? And what's the best way in which to deliver that. And, um, and I think that mm -hmm. when we're talking to people in the construction industry, there's a lot of change going on, um, obviously. And I think that it's very easy to focus on, well, there's this new technological shift and therefore it is either going to make me obsolete or it's going to completely shift the way in which I do my work, or it's going to shift the, the, the needs that people have. And, and I think that oftentimes that that's a distraction. I think that what you really need to do is step mm -hmm. back and say, what value can I provide to people? And is there a better way to provide that same value, right? People's needs don't necessarily change. The reason why people got into the elevator with the soothing female voice is because what they ultimately wanted was a sense that there's a person in control and you needed to give that to them in a new way. And for the construction industry, I'm sure there are all sorts of ways in which you understand exactly how you bring value to people and what your company brings, brings value. And there are now, now going to be new tools and technologies that are going to enable that. And your question isn't, well, how do I razzle dazzle or how do I use this new thing just because the question is what is the core value that people need from me and then how can I make sure that I'm delivering mm. that in a new way while being really really crystal clear about the continued value that I provide hey innovators 
Is there a way to prepare your company for successful implementation of technological innovation? After over 115 episodes talking with some of the best minds in the construction industry, the answer is a resounding yes. There are building blocks that you can put into place that will form the foundation for your company to successfully implement technology. I have compiled my thoughts from those conversations into a new ebook simply titled Foundational Building Blocks for Successful Tech Adoption. You can download the ebook for free at our website, bridgingthegappod.com. After you have, I'd love to hear your feedback. As always, keep innovating. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about there is something that we talk about a, a lot on on this show, and that's the empathy mm. for the end user. And no technology innovation is going to be successful unless you go to the end user and you sit down and you have that empathy with them and you figure out their pain points and, and what their motivation is. And then you work around that instead of just kind of cramming something down. You got to start with the people that are actually going to be using it and implementing it, have empathy for them. And then work backwards from there when you're. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really great, great way of thinking about it. You know, you have to, you do, you have to start with where they are, and you, you have to also be mindful of where, where us, where the gaps are, that can make something seem like. It can make something seem like it's zero percent successful, where in fact it's probably already ninety nine percent successful, and what you need to do is just like bridge that final mm. little gap. You know, there's a. Um, I was really fascinated to watch this, what happened with, um, Lime, you know, Lime, the scooter company, uh, you know, their cities are mm -hmm. full of these mechanical scooters and, um, and, uh, and so, right. uh, you know, when, when Lime and Bird and all these scooters came out of the city streets, people were like freaking out about them. You saw these, uh, these newspaper articles about how, uh, cities are cons considering banning these things. And a lot of that was driven by concerns of safety. Uh, and, um, and so here you have this issue where there's a new technology that's 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 been introduced in a in a mass way. It's it's altering consumer behavior. People are now using them to get around cities. Um, seems like it's possibly very unsafe, and so there's a lot of concern about that. And therefore, people want to ban it or they're they're railing against it. So Lime decided to look into the data very smartly to see like, you know what are we actually talking about here. And what they what they found was that the vast 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 right like ninety nine plus percent rides uh, were totally safe, um, that there was a small percentage of rides where there was some kind of accident, um, but most of those were, um, you know, nobody was injured in any way. And there was a very tiny, tiny fraction, a fraction of a fraction of a, of a percent um, in which uh, people were seriously injured. And they looked at that and they said, well, okay, what was happening in those? And what they found was that the, the bulk of those serious injuries happened on someone's first five rides. Now, once you have that information, you look at this problem in a totally new way. Because now you understand that what you're dealing with isn't a technology problem. It's an education problem, right? Now, now you're able to reframe it. You mm -hmm. see what your real problem is and therefore how you can best deliver value to people. So if the problem is that people are having accidents in their first five rides, well, then you better just create some kind of educational program where people can have their first five rides in a controlled environment. Because once they get used to the thing, their chances of having an accident go down actually rather significantly. So that's what Lyme does. They introduce all these programs nationwide in which people can come and learn how to ride in a parking lot or whatever. So they get used to the thing. So that by the time they go out into the real streets, they're comfortable. Um, 
I, I like to call this the 99% their problem, right? The, it looked like there was a giant problem, but actually the thing was 99% there. There was just 1% that needed to be filled. And that was understanding exactly what is happening with your consumer, with your end consumer, as you were just saying, and making sure that you're doing everything possible to bridge what you do to what they need. And you got to do that on a granular, granular level and understand exactly what people need and exactly what kind of problems you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, spot on. Uh, so you have a new book coming out. What's it about and where can people go to get it? Uh, so thanks. So it's called Build for Tomorrow and it is it is basically exactly what we've been talking about here. It is a guide to adaptability. And um, what I do is I break down change, the experience of change into four phases, panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. And uh, and what I want to do is, is help people move through these stages. My argument is that everybody, doesn't matter how successful you are, everybody goes through change within these four phases. The difference is that some people move through them a lot faster and more efficiently than others. So I want to help through lessons of really successful companies and entrepreneurs, but also the lessons from history, as you've heard, because the reason I like history is because this, the full story is told, right? Now you can debate what's happening in the construction industry. You can say, well, in 10 years, this might happen or that might happen rewind far enough back and you can see the full story start to finish. You can see exactly what mm -hmm. happened. And I, I find, I just find that really instructive because it means that you can take lessons from what truly did work and what truly did happen and start to apply them to the story that you're writing today. So anyway, I tell stories from history. I tell stories from the smartest entrepreneurs and I tell some stories from science. And, um, and ultimately what I want to do is help people get through change so that they can reach a moment where they say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to get, wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it, which is their wouldn't go back moment. So anyway, the book is called Build for Tomorrow, and you can find it uh, wherever you find books. Awesome. Well, Jason, final question for you. What does innovation mean to you? Innovation means not being satisfied with what there already is. Um, you know, there's this great Harvard Business Review piece that asked, why do big companies stop innovating? And the answer that it offers is because after a company's early innovations and they find something that works in the marketplace, they start to shift and they start to shift their resources and their attention and their efforts away from innovation and towards efficiency. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with efficiency, but here's what happens if you build an entire organization where everybody's incentivized top to bottom to make something better, faster, and cheaper that they're already doing. What happens is that you don't keep yourself alert at all to other changes in your industry, such that you don't see and you don't know how to react to big disruptive ideas that are ultimately going to put you out of business. And so mm -hmm. what I, what I, want to do and what I want to see from everybody is a good mixture. We should be doing things efficiently. You should know how the, how you work and how you bring value to people. And you should try to figure out how to do that in the most efficient way possible. But you better leave that door open to identify new ideas and feel like you know there will come a time, not in one burst, but rather there will come a time and it will be a slow series of steps that you're going to have to be very alert to and responsive to, where the thing that you're doing cannot simply be the only thing that you do, that you're going to have to change and you have to evolve. And that to me is what innovation is. Awesome. Well, Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Hey, really appreciate it. The conversation. Thank you. Look appreciate forward it. to the book. Oh, thanks. 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 I appreciate it. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take. When change inevitably happens, train yourself to see the gains instead of the loss. This is when you will feel more in control. A vital step in this equation is to not 
extrapolate out the worst possible situation. It is more than likely never going to come to pass. There is always opportunity and growth in change. Second take, I loved Jason's question to ask in change moments. How can this be put to good use? What a great question to change your perspective and see those gains. He told several examples from history that we can learn from and avoid the traps people got stuck in. And finally, technology isn't threatening. However, it is so important to build a bridge of familiarity to create comfortability, just like the woman's voice in the elevator. Leading with empathy is the road you need to take to be successful. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software Great Tech Group at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant. Edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2022.